Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Again, it's good to see you this morning. This might not be a very familiar psalm to many of you. There's some foreign language in there, but it's an important psalm because it's about the true king. It's about the true king. You know, uh, in 2003, LeBron James was drafted. He was drafted into the NBA as an 18-year-old phenom and prodigy. And uh, from the time LeBron was really like a junior in high school, he was seen as the next big thing the next great basketball player. And even as a rookie in the NBA, when he was 18 years old, he had a nickname. Anybody know what his nickname was? King James. King James. And uh, later on in his career, when Cleveland, the first time he was with Cleveland, when they had ascended and become quite a good team, they went to the NBA Finals, Nike began a marketing campaign focusing on and featuring LeBron. And uh, during the NBA Finals, on some of the downtown buildings of Cleveland, they would unveil these massive banners with LeBron's face on them. And above LeBron's face were the words, We are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. And the idea was all basketball fans are witnessing LeBron sort of ascend to the throne. The throne of the NBA, becoming the world's greatest player, which, by the way, he is the world's greatest player. He's the second greatest player of all time behind Michael Jordan. That's an indisputable fact. It's in the Bible somewhere, I'm sure. Um, He's a great player. And uh, that was actually a really cool campaign that Nike did. Um, And the idea that we are all witnesses to LeBron's greatness was something that stuck with a lot of people. I mean, it's 12 years old or so now, and I still remember it. This is a psalm that's really saying something similar. It's saying that we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses to the king, not LeBron James, but to Jesus. This is a psalm about who Jesus really is. It's a psalm about the Lord, the Lord, and his name is Jesus. This psalm is saying, actually, Peter in Acts 2 literally says in his sermon at Pentecost, we are all witnesses to what's happened with Jesus. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is now the king of all creation. So that's what this psalm is about. It testifies to the greatness and to the glory of King Jesus, to the greatness and the glory of the Lord himself. And what's really interesting about that is that this psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. It was written a thousand years before he was born. And so it's both a prophecy and a psalm all rolled into one. This is actually one of the clearest examples in the Bible of what are known as messianic psalms. Messianic psalms. Really, every psalm is messianic, and really every section of the entire Bible is messianic because they're all pointing us to Jesus. But this psalm is explicitly so. It's an explicit, overt prophecy 
and poem about who Jesus Christ is and about what Jesus will do. And so this psalm is it's doing something in our lives this morning. At least that's the intent. That's the intent of the Holy Spirit. You see, we say often here that, that the Bible reads you more than you read the Bible. When you read the Bible, when you hear the Bible read, it's not just this intellectual exercise. The Holy Spirit of God is actually using the words written on the page to communicate something that you are supposed to do. Something that you are supposed to be. And what it's saying this morning is it's summoning each one of you. It's calling each one of you to submit your lives to King Jesus, to the Lord. The Bible's always asking something of you. It's asking you to believe. It's asking you to submit. It's asking you to worship. And this is one of the prime ways in which God is, he's beckoning you today. He's beckoning you to be who he made you to be. That is a servant and a worshiper of his. So that's what this psalm is about. It's directing all of us to put our attention and our gaze on Jesus. Now, this chapter can really be neatly divided into three sections. Preachers always love when you can neatly divide psalms and you can neatly divide this one into three parts. And so we'll look at those together as we see the main idea that Jesus is the Lord. We'll see that he's the Lord as a king. He's the Lord as a priest. And then thirdly, Jesus is the Lord as a warrior. So king, priest, warrior. Okay. So you'll notice first in that superscription, that this is a psalm of David. He wrote this when he was the king of Israel. And that makes the first verse of the psalm really important for our understanding of the psalm as a whole. David literally writes here, the oracle of Yahweh to my Lord. What our translations say is, the Lord says to my Lord. So as we've seen in this series, when we see that word Lord in all caps, that's a name for God. It's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, the proper name of God. So this verse is saying that Yahweh is speaking to someone who is the Lord, but who is not David. To someone who is the king, but who is not King David, because King David calls this person here, my Lord. And so some people will say that David is actually referencing himself, that this is a self-referential psalm here, but that's not the best way to take it. David is actually speaking about his greater son. The Lord that he's referring to here is a reference to Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David. We know that because Jesus references this exact verse in his own earthly ministry on multiple occasions when he's trying to communicate to the religious leaders of his day who, in fact, he is, the king, the Lord. This verse is also used by the author of Hebrews. Listen to what he writes. After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And to which of the angels has he ever said? Now here's the quote from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this psalm is a prophecy about Jesus, David's greater son, David's king, David's lord. And these initial verses are about the fact that this Lord Jesus is going to be the king. He's going to rule. He's going to reign as king. And the reign of Jesus is so magnificent that even King David, in all of his glory and in all of his honor as king, owes Jesus his allegiance. That's what these words are intended to communicate to us. 
where the prophecy that God gives says, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That phrase there, to be seated at God's right hand, that's like a shorthand for expressing some very important theological concepts, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, and the session of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's what it means when it says, sit at my right hand. So here's the big idea of Jesus as king. Listen, as a result of Jesus dying for sinners at the cross, and then after that, conquering death and conquering sin in his resurrection, Jesus has been glorified. Jesus has ascended into his heavenly, kingly rule. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the one who, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Jesus is the king Verses 2 and 3 really are an explication of verse 1. They're attempting to fill that out. Verse 2 is saying that Jesus is the kind of king who is going to subjugate all of his enemies. One day his enemies will bow to him. And in verse 3 we read that Jesus is the kind of king whose people will joyfully, gladly submit to his reign. Now this hasn't happened fully yet, but it will happen fully on the day when Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. So, remember, remember, this psalm is not just an objective sort of intellectual exercise for you this morning. This psalm is a summons, a summons on your life. This psalm is beckoning you to see Jesus rightly. And so the question, really, the question is not, is Jesus your king? That is not the question. Jesus is your king. Whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus Christ, at this very moment, is seated at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling over this universe with perfect justice and mercy. If you've submitted to Jesus, that's great. If you haven't, he calls you to do so. But Jesus is the king now. And part of the message of the gospel is that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the question isn't, is Jesus your king? The question, and the way that this psalm is summoning you, is are you submitted? Are you submitted this morning to the kingship of Jesus? Here's why that's an important question. Submission to the kingship of Jesus is actually the best possible thing for you. It's the best thing for me. Submission to King Jesus is our best life now. Because that's what we were made to be. People serving and loving and fellowshipping with and worshipping Jesus. You know, it might be helpful for you to realize that all of you are submitted to some kind of king. All of you right now are serving something or someone, as Bob Dylan, that great theologian, says. You've got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. And so maybe it would be helpful for you to think about this morning, maybe just, who are you serving? Who are you submitting to? Who is your king? And how do you know? How can you diagnose yourself in that regard? Well, think about this. Think about who or what. Who or what is so central and essential. 
so central and essential to your life that should you lose this thing or lose this person, you would feel that your life is really hardly worth living at all. What is um, the thing that has the controlling position of your heart, that is in the pilot seat of your heart? And whatever that is, or whoever that is, that is your king. That is who you are submitting to. That's who you are framing your life around. And what you need this morning, and what I need this morning, what the psalm calls us to this morning, is disillusionment. Disillusionment with our false, fake bad kings. Maybe your king is money and success. That's a very, very common king in our world, but that is a bad one, a bad king. I read this week about a a Korean businessman who lost a $370 million investment, $370 million investment in the span of a couple of days, and who then committed suicide afterwards. And his wife was being interviewed by the police. And she said to the police, when the nation's stock index fell below 1,000, my husband stopped eating and he went on a drinking binge for days and finally decided to kill himself. Money is a bad king. You need to be disillusioned from following money. Maybe your king is a hobby or a pleasure that you love. You know what a king is in suburban San Antonio in 2019? Youth sports. Youth sports is a king. And as my kids get up, get older and start playing youth sports, I see how parents act. And you know what? I see how I want to act. And I think, good gracious, we are, this is a worship service. You know what another king is? College football. Have you ever been to a game at Texas A&M? I hope you haven't. But if you have, that's okay. I can forgive you. What a great liturgy they have there. It's like one huge worship gathering. I'm not just trying to pick on Aggies. All sports fans can experience something similar. It reminds me of one of my favorite television shows ever, Friday Night Lights. Some of you might have seen Friday Night Lights. I grew up in West Texas, and that is like the story of my life in so many ways. And one of the best characters in Friday Night Lights is a man named Buddy Garrity, who's a used car salesman in Dillon, Texas, and also just happens to be the biggest booster on the planet for the Dillon Panthers. His life revolves around the Dillon Panthers. So much so that there's one great player that he really wants to play for Dillon, but who lives in another school district. And so what Buddy Garrity does is he takes a mailbox and he puts a mailbox on an empty lot in the school district of Dillon, and that becomes this player's new address. I'm sure that's never happened in real life in any Texas town ever, but it's an example of how driven Buddy Garrity is to see the Dillon Panthers succeed. And one of the great things about that show is that as his particular narrative arc progresses, you see that he's eventually left with nothing and no one but himself and the Dillon Panthers. And frankly, he's miserable. Frankly, it's depressing. He finds himself in an apartment complex all by himself, wondering if they had won the Friday night game. The point, again, is that whatever your king may be, if it's not Jesus, you need to experience the disillusionment that is inevitably going to come from orienting your life, from worshiping and serving something or someone that isn't the Lord himself. And so that's how Jesus is summoning you through this psalm. Right now, through his Spirit. Jesus is calling you to repent, to turn away. That's what that word means. To turn away from following bad kings, whoever or whatever they may be. 
We need the disillusionment that comes with the letdown of having everything we've ever dreamed of and then the illumination of the Spirit to see that Jesus is Lord because that's where our hearts will find joy. So, Spirit, please give us that today. Amen. Jesus is the King. Secondly, the psalm tells us that the Lord is a priest. Look at verse 4. We saw in verse 1 that this is a, an oracle or a prophecy, but we see another prophecy there in verse 4, but on top of it being a prophecy, it's also an oath. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn. He has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a king, and Jesus is a priest over his people. Now let's think about that just for a second together. First, who in the world is Melchizedek? Who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek is a man that shows up in one other part of the entire Old Testament. In the story of Genesis, in chapter 14, he just appears out of nowhere. Abraham, whom I'm sure most of you have heard of, has just won a big victory over some other ancient kings, and he's got all the spoils of his victory, and he's walking back to his home. And then this man appears, who is called the king of Salem, and his name is Melchizedek. And Abraham and Melchizedek sit down, and they have a meal together. And then Abraham gives to Melchizedek a tithe, or a tenth, 10% of all of the spoils of his war. And then Melchizedek basically disappears. He disappears from the story of the Bible until this psalm, until Psalm 110. And the only other place in the whole Bible he shows up is the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews explains at length Melchizedek's purpose. And here it is to summarize. Jesus is a priest. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek to prove his superiority over all other priests who were of a different tribe, the Israeli tribe of Levi. So it's as if Melchizedek just sort of, boom, appearing, and then, boom, disappearing in this story with no background given, no genealogy, and receiving honor from Abraham. That story exists in the Bible simply to teach you about Jesus, about who Jesus is as a priest. I want to read from Hebrews because Hebrews exists largely to explain this very concept to us. It's going to be on the screen, so follow along with me. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 7 says. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise in the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron, which is what most Jewish priests were? For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. In other words, Jesus can't be a priest because he's a Judahite, not a Levite, right? This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, here's Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So Jesus is the true and great king and Jesus is the perfect high priest. And he is right now, both of these things for you. He's both of these things for you. And so if Jesus being king means that we are being summoned to submit to his lordship, 
What does Jesus being a priest mean for you now? Two things real quick. First, the priesthood of Jesus summons you to celebrate. The priesthood of Jesus summons you to celebrate. What does a priest do? In all kinds of religions, but in the Old Testament and in the Christian religion, a priest mediates the relationship between us and God. A priest mediates the relationship between us and God. And so what Hebrews is at pains to say is that the priesthood of Jesus is something we should celebrate because in Jesus' priesthood, he has dramatically altered our situation before God. Jesus the priest has dramatically altered our situation before God so that now there is no longer a barrier between a holy God and rebellious people like you and me because Jesus himself is our high priest and he's not just our high priest, he's also our final sacrifice. Jesus is the priest and Jesus is the offering made by himself so that sin can be taken away. Hebrews says again, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Jesus's priestly work means that you can gain access again. You can gain access again to God your Father. You can again have a relationship with him, not because you have made enough or merited enough or done enough, but because Jesus as your priest has mediated that relationship for you by his grace. So the priesthood of Jesus means we celebrate. It means we celebrate. Secondly, the priesthood of Jesus means summons us to pray. This is one of my favorite things about this idea. Think about this with me. The Christian faith doesn't just say that you should pray to God, although it certainly does say that, right? But the Christian faith says even more than that, that God prays for you. Have you ever thought of that? God in Jesus prays for you. He is still at the right hand of God at this very second praying for you. He is still your advocate. He is still your mediator. Uh, another great movie, Goodwill Hunting. Some of you might remember that movie from the 90s. It stars Matt Damon, Robin Williams. And Matt Damon plays this genius kid from the south part of Boston who's a troubled kid and uh, just happens to have gotten in trouble early in the film and goes to a court appearance where he's going to be charged with some sort of juvenile delinquency. And instead of having a lawyer... Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon, represents himself. He represents himself, and he gets up in court, and he begins citing from memory all of these, like, 400-year-old legal arguments in front of the judge. And the judge cuts him off and says, everything you're saying here is ridiculous, and then he sentences him. As brilliant as Will Hunting is, he is not capable of advocating for himself. And that's the truth for all of us. We, as well as we might be doing, we cannot advocate for ourselves before God. We need someone else to represent us, someone else to stand up for us, someone else to assist us. And that is the work of Jesus, our priest. He prays for us. He helps us. You know, practically, that's one of the reasons Christians traditionally pray in the name of Jesus, right? When you end a prayer, you'll often say, in Jesus' name. That's not some sort of like magical incantation. That's not some magical genie potion that's going to make your prayers come true if you just wish hard enough. 
What that is, is a verbal acknowledgement, a verbal acknowledgement that all of the adequacy of our prayers depends not on us, but on Jesus. The adequacy of any prayer we make depends not on us, but on Jesus. Think about it like this. When you flick on a light switch in your home or in your office, when you flick on a light switch, the bulbs, if they're working properly, illuminate, right? Now, does the light switch provide the power for the bulbs? No. That comes from electricity, right? The switch doesn't have any power in itself. The switch just connects the bulbs to the electricity. In the same way, our prayers have no virtue in and of themselves to give us access to the Father. Christ has done that. Prayers connect us to God through Jesus. And so it's good news for you that Jesus is your king, and it's good news that he's your high priest. He summons you to submit. He summons you to celebrate. He summons you to pray. Last thing we see, Jesus is king, priest, and then the closing of the psalm, Jesus is a warrior. Jesus is a warrior. That's what verses 5, 6, and 7 are about. You know, verse 4, Jesus is priest. The book of Hebrews elaborates on that, right? Verses 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is a warrior. The book of Revelation elaborates on that. So these verses are prophesying about the return of Jesus. And these verses, foreign and weird though they may sound to you, are actually good news. They're good news because they say that Jesus is going to make everything right again. That Jesus is going to be perfectly just and equitable. He's going to execute justice on the nations. He's going to destroy all evil and all injustice. And one of the ways that Jesus himself says this is when he tells Peter in the Gospels, I'm going to build my, my church and the gates of hell, remember this, the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, we sometimes interpret that as thinking that Jesus is on defense and the gates of hell are on offense. The gates of hell are attempting to prevail, but they're not going to prevail. But that's a bad interpretation. What is a gate? In the ancient world, a gate is a defensive structure. A gate is a part of the fortress or the walls of the city. What Jesus is saying there in Matthew, when he says the gates of hell will not prevail, is that he is on the offensive. Jesus is running the air raid offense against hell. Jesus is going to rack up like 700 yards of offense. Jesus is the one that is on the attack. Jesus is the warrior. Jesus is storming the gates of hell. Jesus is pushing back the darkness. And he's including you, his people, his church, in that effort. So, you Christians, you're, you're pushing back the darkness. When you're engaging in kingdom work, when you're caring for orphans and widows, when you're loving your neighbor as yourself, when you're working for the flourishing of your community, when you're serving your spouse, when you're trying to lead your children, when you're praying for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, all of these and more are ways that we, in the name and in the power of Jesus, push back the darkness. The gates of hell are being stormed. And Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our general. Jesus is our champion. And Jesus is going to win. Listen, this is the real Jesus. Psalm 110 gives you a picture of him. So as we wrap up, let me ask you one more question. Does this view of Jesus have room in your view of Jesus? Let me put that more clearly. Does your view of Jesus have room for Jesus as a warrior? 
for Jesus as a priest, for Jesus as a king. The reason I ask that is because we all have a tendency to truncate the real Jesus, to minimize the real Jesus, to fit Jesus into a box of our own devising so that we're more comfortable with him. But listen, if you worship a God and if you read a Bible that never makes you uncomfortable in any way, then it's likely that you've created God in your own image and not that you're worshiping the real God in whose image you are created. No, the real Jesus is all of these things. And when we think that we can pick and choose what we will like and accept about Jesus, as if we're like in a text conversation and we get tired of the conversation, so we just click, do not disturb. When he says something that we don't like or something that makes us uncomfortable, we need to get, get reoriented. So we might just want baby Christmas Jesus. We all love baby Christmas Jesus, right? Um, we might just want the teacher, spiritual guru Jesus. We might just want political Jesus. Every political party in the history of the United States has claimed Jesus on their side. There's Jesus on the left. There's Jesus on the right. There's libertarian Jesus. There's centrist Jesus. There's socialist Jesus. We love to truncate Jesus. We might just want forgiving Jesus. But if we're really going to have Jesus at all, we have to have the whole Jesus. The full Jesus. Jesus as Lord. I love how Tom Wright puts it. Christian worship declares that Jesus is Lord and that therefore nobody else is. What's more, it doesn't just declare it as something to be believed, like the fact that the sun is hot or the sea wet. It commits the worshiper to allegiance, to following this Jesus, to being shaped and directed by him. Are you being shaped? Are you being directed by Jesus? Is he your Lord? If he's not, you need to be disillusioned of the false lords in your life and return to him in faith. Come to him in repentance. Submit your life to him. It's the best possible option. If you are one of his, the response is the same. This is an opportunity for us to do that again. One more story and then we're done. It's hard for me to preach on Jesus as king without referencing C.S. Lewis, so I'm going to do it. Uh, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, at the very beginning when the children first go into Narnia, they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mrs. Beaver says to Mr. Beaver, they say Aslan is on the move. They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps that he's already landed here in Narnia. And Beaver says this, and then Lewis writes the following. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment Beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream, it feels as if it had, been some, it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into the dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in their insides. At the name of Jesus, do you feel something jump? Do you feel something jump because you know that he is the king, he is the priest, and he is your warrior? He's good, he's gracious, he's just, and his, he's merciful. He's worthy of your full allegiance. So submit to him. Let's pray.